All right. Good morning. Great to see you. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at uh, Resurrection OC. And uh, I want to invite you to turn with me, if you've got a Bible, to Revelation chapter 2. And uh, as you're doing that, um, I want to just mention a couple things. Um, first, if you're hearing that, is anybody hear this noise that's like... <laughs> it feels like there's like some evil force being restrained. Is, I guess there's nothing we can do about that. Hopefully nobody goes seasick in the middle of this. Um, I wanted to say thanks to Eric Heinrichs for, uh, for leading our, our band and the rest of our band for leading us in, in, in music this morning. Uh, we gave Jason Reed, our uh, worship director, a rare Sunday off. So thanks to Jason. Um, thanks to Eric for helping make that happen. Um, our community group is a meeting. This is kind of a new practice we're getting into, but is meeting this Thursday uh, evening. If you haven't been before, we'd love for you to come. We're going to be meeting at um, the Covenant Hills Clubhouse Thursday at 6.30. And uh, the information on that you can find at resoc.life as well. Okay, with that, let me uh, read for us the letter to the church in Pergamum. We are uh, working our way through the seven letters of Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor. Um, on a Sunday morning in 96 AD, the Apostle John was, uh, was worshiping uh, with the people of God, and he received a, a vision of the, the risen and ascended Jesus. And after describing uh, what Jesus looked like, Jesus began to dictate these seven letters to seven churches. And so uh, let me invite you to stand with me as we give our attention to the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. As Jesus speaks to the church in Pergamum. Jesus says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of them hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word. It's completely true, and it's given to you because he loves you. So let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you um, speak to us? Would you give us words, or give us ears to hear the words that you have for your people? Even us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated, please. Well, a couple of years ago, I, I came across an article uh, that has haunted me ever since. It was an article uh, entitled, My Problem with the Bible. Now, there's probably a lot of articles, you know, with some title like that floating around the internet. Um, but this article wasn't uh, what you might think based on the title. My Problem with the Bible, uh, he, he was not like uncovering new scientific evidence that 
uh, or historical evidence or, you know, there's, there's a lot of that kind of stuff floating around the, the internet and, uh, and various other places. But this article was not attempting to discredit the Bible in any way. This article was written by a, a man named Brian Zahn who is a pastor and who loves the Bible. And in, um, this, you know, in this article, he said, I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth. And I want to read it, and I think that it's, and I want to think that it's talking about me. So he, he's writing this article about his problem with the Bible, not in an attempt to like take the Bible down, but he says, "Here's my problem with the Bible. The problem with the Bible is that it is written to people whose perspective is utterly different than mine is." And he begins to talk about in this article that. Um, you know, the, the, the Bible is the record of God speaking to and interacting with his people. And so it's God coming to his people, the Hebrews, when they were slaves in Egypt and uh, speaking a word of comfort to them as God brought his people out of slavery. It's a record of God speaking to his people when they were in exile in Babylon and um, it, it, instructing them on how to live faithfully as they lived in a, as an oppressed people group. And it is, as we see here in Revelation, God's word of comfort to his people that are being persecuted in the first century in the Roman Empire. And so the problem uh, with the Bible that Brian Zahn is explaining here that I just, I think, um, I have to say, I really resonate with this, is that um, we live more like the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Roman Empire, the victors in each of those circumstances. Uh, we are people who live in, um, if not the wealthiest, certainly one of the wealthiest nations that uh, the world has ever known. Uh, if you live under a bridge in Orange County, <laughs> you have better access to clean water, to healthcare, to education for your children than most people on the planet. And so the problem with the Bible is that it is often written to people who are struggling and suffering. And when we don't bring that perspective to the Bible, uh, we can use words that were intended as words of comfort to hurt people. So let me just say this. I know that based on what I've already said, some of you, based on political and cultural persuasions, are already getting... <laughs> worked up about what I'm going to say. Just hang with me, okay? Just hang with me. Um, because it's not wrong. You don't need to apologize for living where you live. Um, but I do think that we need to work hard um, to understand the words of the Bible as they were originally written. We need to be aware of the way our experience shapes the way that we read the Bible. Um, in Isaiah 40, God prophesies through Isaiah to his people that are about to go into exile. And he says, comfort, 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 my people, says the Lord. Now, those words are much different if you are about to go into exile wondering how God can be present with you than they are if we simply apply them to, you know, people living in South Orange County where we are obsessed with comfort, right? Um, when Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first in Matthew 20, I mean, we have to ask, is that really good news? I mean, because if you're winning and Jesus says the first will be last, that's not really great news to us, is it? We have to work a little bit harder to understand what Jesus really means. The problem with the Bible is that it was largely written to poor, displaced, and persecuted people. And we are 
for the most part, wealthy, settled, and upwardly mobile people. And again, I'm not saying that that is wrong. And I'm not saying that the Bible requires us to live a, a sort of voluntary, a life of voluntary poverty, though God may call some of us to that. There's nothing wrong with being rich. After all, Jesus was the richest man that's ever lived. But it does mean that we have to work hard to understand the Bible rightly. The Bible doesn't necessarily um, call us to seek out oppression, but it does call us to live lives of generosity, of hospitality, and especially relevant to the passages we're looking at this morning, it calls us to live a life of humility. And uh, this morning I really want to focus on humility because this passage is all about looking at uh, the Word of God, uh, the truth of God, and... um, and building our lives on the foundation of the truth of God. And when we come uh, at this from a position of, you know, affluence and power, uh, we are tempted, I think, to use the truth of God as a weapon to whack somebody else with. And um, I looked up this quote. It's not clear who said this, but somebody once said that Christianity is uh, one beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. And I think that in the culture that we live, we can often live like Christianity is one beggar who's found bread, who uses that loaf to whack all the other beggars, so the other beggars then conclude that bread is toxic and don't want to taste it. And that is a tragedy, isn't it? Um, And yet, living for us as Christians means that we we can build our lives on the Word of God and and misuse it and use it as an opportunity to whack other people. And so Jesus comes to the church, um, and he says that unless you repent, I'm going to war against you with the sword of my mouth. Uh, and we must hear him with humility, lest, we turn, lest he turns that sword against us. So look with me at what Jesus is saying to this church in Pergamum, and yet in the inspiration of God's word for his people, he speaks to us as well. So first I want you to see uh, the context. What is, what, is, what is the context that the church in Pergamum finds itself in? Uh, Jesus says here, um, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who, killed, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Okay, uh, two times Jesus refers to the city that this church is found in, uh, the city that's called Pergamum, which I don't know why to me sounds like a kind of tea, but uh, um, he calls this, this city um, the place where Satan dwells, or the throne of Satan. And it's like, wow, that's a, that's a, that's a harsh way to, um, to describe um, this, this city, like most of the letters to the seven churches here uh, in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus has both positive and negative things to say about this church. He both uh, commends them and corrects them. And so he speaks to this conversation in, uh, this congregation. He says, I know you. I know where you live. And he refers to them as like the, the throne of Satan, this, this, this city that they live in. What is he getting at? Well, Um, Every one of these letters, Jesus uh, speaks to the church in a way that shows he's very familiar with the place that they live and the context in which they they find themselves. And so scholars think that when he talks about, when Jesus is talking about the throne of Satan, uh, he's he's kind of doing a play on words. He's saying a couple things at the same time. The first thing he's saying is that the, the city of Pergamum was built on the side of a mountain. 
And, uh, you know, the, in the Greek world, they call it an Acropolis, right? Well, a city fortress kind of built on the side of a hill. And uh, it was a wealthy city. Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. There was a, um, the second largest uh, library in the ancient world was found in Pergamum. So it was, a, it was a significant, culturally rich place. And the city was built on the side of a hill. And uh, throughout the city, and especially high up on the hill above the city, there were many temples to pagan gods. And, uh, and so I th- we think that, uh, not, I'm just re- telling you what scholars say about this, um, that, that the appearance of the city was such that it looked like the, the pagan powers were enthroned above the city. You know, 800 or 1,000 feet above the streets of the city, there were uh, particularly two temples to pagan gods. There was a temple to the god uh, Asclepios, I think is how it's pronounced. And Asclepios was thought to be the god of healing, and his symbol was the serpent. And so... Um, uh, those who were in need of healing would go up to the temple at night and spend the night there. And they would sleep in the temple, and at night the priests of the pagan god would let snakes out into the temple, and as you slept, they would like crawl in and amongst you. And it was thought that if you were touched by a snake, that you were touching this god, and that it would bring healing. And that is satanic and wrong. It's in the Bible. Okay? <laughs> Um, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, right? Where God says snakes are gross and evil. And um, I hate them. <laughs> um, okay, so you see kind of this, this, the reference to the satanic presence there. But more than simply the symbol of the snake, it's, it's the idea that there is a God other than the living and true God that we would look to um, for, uh, for healing. Uh, there was also a temple to the god Zeus, who was called in the Roman world Zeus the Savior. And, uh, and so these temples and other scholar, scholars believe that it just, the city looked like there was a, a throne above it. And everywhere you would go in the city, you could see the pagan temples up, um, up you know, at the top of this mountain. Um, but even more than that, Jesus calls Pergamum Satan's throne because, I mean, think about what that, the word means, uh, Satan's throne. Okay, the, the, Satan, um, we think of Satan as sort of the, the devil incarnate, uh, evil incarnate, and certainly the Bible talks about uh, him in that way, but the word, uh, the word Satan means the adversary. And so what, um, what Jesus is saying here is that there are powers at work in the city of Pergamum that have an adversarial relationship uh, with the living and true God that vie for our affection. And that when we, we, when we um, give our hearts even to good things, that we enthrone them in our lives and they become false gods to us. And uh, they, they rival for our affections and they become, they become false gods. And so the church in Pergamum lived in this city that screams kind of wealth and power and influence. And uh, there was a, a very palpable sense in which to be a, um, a, like an honorable citizen of the city of Pergamum was to give your primary allegiance to the state, um, to the worship of Caesar and Zeus and the other, uh, the other pagan gods. Um, and to get caught up in that lifestyle. 
And there is just as much, isn't there, a temptation in our own time to get caught up in, uh, in sort of the, the culture uh, that we live in that says that wealth and success and power and significance will fulfill you and make you happy. There is always a temptation to let anything, even a good thing, become an ultimate thing in our lives. Um, you know, even good things like our work, our reputation, our children, our, um, our re- a relationship, our possessions, our comforts, our, our ideology. We give them our hearts. And Jesus says that when we enthrone them in our lives, they become false gods. And that is, in fact, satanic. But here in Pergamum, Jesus actually commends this church. He says, there has been pressure all around you from outside and you have withstood the pressure uh, that comes from outside. Living in this place that is obsessed with the false gods of power and wealth and significance, the church has been faithful. And Jesus says, well done, well done. You have not given in to temptation. You have held fast to my name. Uh, even when this man Antipas was, was martyred for his faith in Jesus, the church has remained faithful. Jesus says, well done. And yet still there was a problem. And so the second thing I want you to see is the problem with this church. Uh, The problem in Pergamon was this. The church had withstood external pressures from the culture around, but had given in to pressure within. The church had um, condoned um, false teaching within the church. And that's what the the, the references to the the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. We don't know exactly what they what they taught. It says that they um, they taught that it was acceptable to uh, to eat food sacrificed to idols and to engage in sexual immorality. And the idea we think was that um, you know the, the teaching was essentially God knows what's in your heart and uh, whatever you know is done between consensual adults is fair game. God know, you know what's the big deal. What's the big deal? And Jesus says that that is, uh, that that is wrong. I, uh, I came across a news story this week. I think this is a couple of years old, but it's this tragic news story of a young woman who uh, was trying to begin a career as a model. And she had a friend taking some pictures of her, and they were out in this kind of cool area where they were, they were taking pictures on train tracks. And she saw a train coming, and she stepped out of the train, uh, out of the way of the oncoming train. And tragically, when she did that, without knowing it, she stepped into the path of another train and was killed. And I wonder if that is maybe a picture of the church in Pergamum, and in fact, a picture of the church in our time as well. That uh, is it possible that the church in our time, like the church in Pergamum, might move out of the freight train that is barreling down on us and in getting out of the way of one danger actually put ourselves in the path of another danger is it not possible that at a time when it feels um, and I I don't want to say this either too strongly or too weakly but it does feel like something in our culture has changed in the last several years and it feels I, I think to many Christians like uh, like, you know, the church is being squeezed in a way that it hasn't maybe for the past couple generations. And is it possible that in that culture that we might withstand pressures from, within, uh, from, from outside and in doing so fall victim to, um, to pressures within the church? Um, if you've... Um, 
been paying attention to the news in the last weeks or years, you have no doubt um, seen this happening in many ways as um, in the past several years as we've seen the Me Too movement kind of bring to light the reality of um, horrific stories, countless stories of the abuse of women and children in our culture. Tragically, what has also come to light is that the church has often not been a safe place. Um, that's, that's, um, that's horrible. And it is um, to our shame that um, those who have been abusers have often found shelter in the church. The church has given shelter to those who have uh, abused children. The church has uh, re-traumatized victims uh, with sort of the veneer of Christianity and saying you have to forgive. Uh, the church has often forced victims to be continually re-traumatized by facing those who have abused them. And, um, and the reason I'm saying this is because even just in this past week, a massive, massive report has come out. I'm not going to name names or denominations or churches. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter because uh, it's, it's everywhere. Um, it's everywhere. But what has come to light is that some leaders, and I think it's fair to say this, that in many cases it's been those pastors and leaders who have been the most vocal in their criticism of the culture around us, the world, the secular culture, have been the most vocal in their criticism, have been the ones that have given uh, shelter to those who have been and are continuing to abuse victims. And that is exactly what Jesus is describing. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about in this letter. That you would withstand the pressure of the culture without and yet give shelter to false teachers uh, within the church. You would condone those who do harm to God's people. Those who have, I mean, this is what he says, those who would find a way to justify sexual immorality. Um, that's at least a part of it, right? And Jesus' words to them and to us are severe. In verse 15, he says, Repent, or I will war against you with the sword of my word the sword of my mouth. There's two times in this letter, one of the features we see in these seven letters is that the vision that, G, that John has of Jesus in, in Revelation chapter 1, uh, the way that he is described, Jesus in chapters 2 and 3 kind of makes reference to that vision um, in ways that are pertinent to the specific needs of the church he's talking to. And here, twice in this letter, he refers to himself um, as, you know, he, he, he makes reference to the, this two-edged sword. Um, it says, the word of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 15, I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Both of those descriptions of Jesus are references to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where the author of Hebrews says, for the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And what Jesus is saying here is this. He's saying that we can move out of the freight train, the way of the freight train of the pressures coming at us from outside. And in doing so, 
we step right into the freight train of compromise if we do not listen to his word. If we do not listen to his word. If we don't take heed of God's truth. And so this is where I want to go back to what I said at the beginning and be very careful. Because there is a danger that in talking about the importance of God's word and the, the foundational truth that God's word is in the life of the Christian, that we can actually take the, take the word of God and use it as a, as a weapon to whack others when I think it's primarily meant to be a, a weapon that God uses to defend us. Well, let me say it like this. It's, it's been said, you know, when, when, it, when it says here that the Word of God is a two-edged sword. I've heard other people say this. This isn't original to me. But the, 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 the two edges of the sword of God's truth are this. That with one edge, God protects his people. And it's important to say that, that God protects his people. And we, therefore, do not need to protect ourselves. But with the other edge of the sword... God is a surgeon, and like a surgeon, God often cuts us in order to bring healing. And so we can be obsessed with the evils and wrongs of our world, but fail to listen to the way that God actually corrects us. Um, and in doing so, the result is like the church in Pergamum, that we become a compromised church. As far as I can tell, um, I haven't done an exhaustive study on this, but as far as I can tell, there's nowhere in the New Testament where Jesus instructs his people to critique the culture. Jesus is constantly telling us to be skeptical. Uh, skeptical is not the right word, but to be self-reflective, to protect against error within the church. So what do we do? Well, Jesus says, repent. He says, stop condoning false teachers and pay attention to my word. Or maybe a, a much simpler way to, to say that is to simply say this, like, we have to pay attention to God's word. Um, not, not, not as a tool to critique the culture around us, um, but as a, uh, as a critique of our own lives. We have to pay attention to the truth of God's word. We have to build our lives around it. If we are going to faithfully navigate the if we're going to live faithfully in a fallen and broken world, we have to build our lives around the Word of God. We have to become people who read and listen to God's Word. Um, listen, I say this to myself. We don't read God's Word to get a longer stick to hurt other people with. We don't read God's Word because somehow in reading God's Word, we earn His favor. And yet it's impossible to enjoy God's favor without reading His Word. We read God's word because we're desperate for him. Sometimes we can uh, read the Bible, and, um, and I think this is especially true for those of us that have been Christians for a long time, or if you've been in the church for a while. We, we can, you know, read the Bible. I feel like as a pastor, it, like I almost want to say something more. Like, I went to church this morning, and the pastor told me to read the Bible. Okay, well, that's where we are right now, Okay. But I want to be like I feel like we can read the Bible and 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 kind of come away and with the impression like I didn't learn anything new today. I've, I'm familiar. I, it's been so long since I've read the Bible and been surprised or read something that I haven't read before. Um, or maybe I read the Bible and I don't know how to apply this, or it's confusing and I'm not sure what it means, um, or I just don't understand what the point is. 
but I think that this is true, that sometimes, there are times when we read the Bible because we need to know what the Bible says, we need to have answers to you know, questions that we have, but I think uh, there are also times when we read the Bible because by reading the Bible, God shapes us, and God forms us, and God, God gives us wisdom even when he doesn't necessarily give us answers. Um, I think that there is uh, immense value to, value gained in the simple practice of reading the Bible, like even when it doesn't immediately answer the questions that I'm looking for uh, answers to. Uh, because when we do that, we are saying, I want to listen to the voice of my Father even at times when I don't really understand it. Um, it develops a posture of wisdom when we submit ourselves to God's Word. I know that some of us uh, in our church are maybe young in our faith, or maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure what you believe about the Bible and about, the, about, about who God is and who the Bible says he is, and, uh, and maybe you don't know where to start. And uh, if that's you, I would, uh, I mean, I would say, one, you can start anywhere. <laughs> um, that's why we're here, to help you read the Bible I would love to talk with you after. In fact, I can even, um, I, I think I probably will do this this week. I'm going to put on our social media presence on, uh, on Facebook and Instagram some thoughts on how to read the Bible. Uh, talk to me afterwards. I'd love to, I'd love to talk with you about that. Talk to somebody sitting next to you. Um, but, but let me say this. Um, I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but if you can learn how to order coffee at Starbucks... You can learn how to read the Bible. <laughs> you know, if you can get your mind around the world of Harry Potter, then you can get your mind around the world of the Bible. And I think the question is not so much do I understand all the questions because, or understand all the answers, because nobody knows what they're getting into when you pick up a book, or else why would you be reading the book? Um, I think it's more a question of, are we desperate enough to sense our need for God and his word? We are here to help. Um, come to community group on, uh, on Thursday nights uh, where we will talk about the Bible. We will talk about this passage and we'll talk about what it means for us. Uh, and you'll meet somebody who maybe will invite you to read the Bible with, you, with them. I, um, my wife a couple weeks ago sent me a study LifeWay, which is a uh, organization that does research on um, trends in Christianity, they did a um, they just published the results of a ten year study, where LifeWay says, okay, if if the if the the commission that God has given to the church is to make disciples of all nations, we want to understand how we can do that more effectively. And so for ten years, they studied I think seven thousand churches. And, uh, and thousands and thousands of Christians to try to understand how the church can be more effective in making disciples. And the one statistically significant thing that they discovered in their research was that those who follow Jesus faithfully are people who read the Bible. That is the only one, that is the only statistically significant factor they discovered. Uh, they said that Christians who read the Bible engage in community more often and more deeply than Christians who don't. Christians who read the Bible regularly are more generous than Christians who don't. Um, every every uh, kind of marker of Christian maturity that she could look to is correlated to reading the Bible. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it?
Um, but here's the rub, right? Like, we, we live in a world, we live in a culture where there is pressure from without. And therefore, we can, we can push back against that pressure and yet not pay attention to the word of God kind of internally. And um, I was reminded this morning of, uh, you know, who Stephen Colbert is. He's a sat- satir- satirist. I don't know. Before he had a, uh, when, when he had his old show, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm, he, he, I'm losing the specifics <laughs> in the moment. But he, he uh, I don't know, this was five, six, eight years ago, something like that, when there was a, uh, a big battle in, in, uh, in our culture about, you know, was it in the Bible Belt? Um, somebody had erected a statue of the Ten Commandments in, a, in like a courthouse. And there was a big legal battle about, you know, can we display the Ten Commandments in, uh, in, a, in a kind of a public building in the United States? And so Stephen Colbert had, a, uh, I think, a congressman on who was very defensive about, um, you know, we have, to, we have to display the Ten Commandments um, you know, even though we are not officially a Christian nation, and he was very, very defensive of that. And uh, Stephen Colbert was talking to him and saying, so the Ten Commandments are really important. And the congressman says, oh yeah, oh, very important. It's the foundation for all, you know, all human laws are based on the Ten Commandments. And as they went at that for a little bit, and uh, Stephen Colbert says, what are the Ten Commandments? The congressman says, uh... <laughs> You know, so we can live like it's very important. The word of God is very important, and yet we don't actually know it. And I think that the best word for that would be hypocrisy, wouldn't it? Um, we live in a culture that is secular. We live in a culture that says this world is all that there really is. And, um, you know, we live in a time when scientific discovery... Um, has, has been incredible. Uh, the things that we learn about the nature of the world that we live in, the universe, are incredible. And I'm not disputing any of that. What I want to push back against is the idea that secularism uh, is sufficient to explain the facts of the world that we live in. I think the facts that science provides to us are incredible. And I think that by reading the Bible, we begin to understand the truth, the true story that makes sense of all of the facts of human existence. When we read the Bible, we don't necessarily get answers to our questions. When we read the Bible, we encounter truth. It doesn't answer every single question, but it explains to us why the world is so good and so messed up. It explains to us why life in this world can be so incredibly wonderful and so incredibly hard. It explains to us where we came from and who God is and why we're here and where we're going. It makes sense of all of the data that our world throws at us in a way that our world cannot explain. About a decade ago, there was a soldier that went off to war, and uh, he had two kids. And uh, before he left, uh, knowing where he was going and knowing that he was going into a, a, a dangerous you know, uh, combat zone in the Middle East, he, he wrote letters to his children. And he wrote a letter to each of his children on uh, each of their birthdays until they turned 18. And uh, he wrote a letter to each of his children to be given to them on the day of, of, uh, of their wedding, just in case he didn't return. And of course, um, the only reason we've heard that story is because he didn't return. And um, 
you think about these two children growing up and every birthday, I mean, my kids look forward to getting presents on their birthday. What do you think those kids look forward to getting on their birthday? They're getting words from their dad. Every year, they're getting words from their father who is no longer present, who says, I love you, I care for you. And you know what? You have the words, you have a letter from your father also that says, I love you. I love you. You are mine. He's giving you his word. He doesn't speak to you so that you can beat others with it. He speaks to you to tell you that you are beloved. And he speaks to you so that your world will make sense. And the reality is that we live in a culture where we are being discipled and shaped and formed uh, by all sorts of influences, you know, every waking hour. And if we don't have an intentional plan to counteract what our world is doing in terms of shaping us and our children, then I think we're fooling ourselves. God is speaking to his people. Will we listen? Finally, let me conclude uh, quickly with this. Uh, the third thing we see in this passage is the promise. Revelation 2:17. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, uh, written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, let me just say, this is the first time I'm going to say this, uh, I, that, I, that I say this, I'll probably say this a lot as we continue through the book of Revelation this year. I have no idea what a lot of that means. <laughs> I don't know why the man is hidden. I don't know exactly what the white stone means. And I don't know why nobody else can know the name that Jesus gives his people. Um, I read uh, in different commentaries, what does this white stone mean? I think I counted nine different possible meanings. Um, so I really, I, I really can't say what, what, what Jesus is saying there. I don't think we know. Um, but here's what I think is clear, is that Jesus is saying, I will provide for you. You don't need to fill yourself with what the world outside provides um, in terms of what our hearts long for, because I have given myself for you. I've sacrificed myself for you. I feed you with my body and my blood. Jesus says, I will provide. He says, I will give you a new name. Uh, I will provide you with significance. And I think that that's really powerful, because if you think about this culture, this church, and a culture that is uh, persecuting it, and the church has withstood the pressure from without, and yet it's giving up on truth within, I think that that's a picture of a church that is longing for relevance. A church that desperately wants to be seen to be relevant in the world around it. And what Jesus says here is, I will give you significance. I will give you significance. Jesus promises this, I will provide, I will satisfy, I am with you, and I will give you a new name. Uh, I don't, like I said, know exactly what the white stone <laughs> means, but we know that um, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, to his church, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we enter the Christian church through baptism, God places his name upon us and therefore gives us his significance. He calls us his own. I um, remember many years ago uh, when my, my second son 
Um, my older two boys are only 19 years, 19 months apart, and so from the very earliest days, my second son was racing to keep up with his older brother, and so he was walking by the time he was about nine months old, and running by the time he was nine months old, and climbing at nine months old, and uh, and he hasn't slowed down since. But I remember when he was, uh, you know, I just taken his first steps, and. And uh, I was just so overcome with pride for my little my little guy. And I remember getting down and saying, "Dad, or uh, you know, Porter, Daddy is so proud of you." And his older brother, who's in the room, saying, "Daddy, say that you're proud of me too." And I remember just being heartbroken at that because, at not even two years old, well, maybe about two years old, there was already something in him where he had learned to question whether he was fully loved by his dad. We live in a world where, I mean, through our sin and brokenness and through um, the influence of our, the world around us, we all long to be told that we are seen, that we are known, that we are loved. And that's what Jesus is promising to his people here. He says, I see you, I know you, I am with you. I've given you my words so that you might know what is right and wrong, what is true. I give you myself. You cannot earn it. You cannot live up to it. And so I freely give it to you. You are significant because I've called you my own. That is the good news. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, would you help us to be people who repent? Would you help us to be people um, living in a fallen world that presses up against us on every side uh, to be help us to be people who uh, do not forsake your name but God would you help us uh, even more than that to be people who love your truth would you speak to us would you give us ears like little children who long to hear the voice of our father Would you make us a church that loves your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.